Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and Bill Puck voices. We humanize our role models and curate a culture of vulnerability and belonging. This is a show designed to innovate, empower, and ignite. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Innovators, it's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. And today's guest is a powerhouse of a woman who defines what it means to be a female executive at some of the largest multimedia companies in the world. Andrea Wasserman is the former head of global commerce at Yahoo, where she led a team of engineers, designers, marketers, strategists, and operators, accelerating the company's commerce business and building new shopping experiences for over 900 million global monthly users. Wasserman is a consumer sector leader, entrepreneur, and intrapreneur with a background across stores, e-commerce, marketing, merchandising, and product who invests deeply in developing people. She transforms businesses and cultures by connecting dots, envisioning what's possible, and rallying teams around the path forward. Most recently, as Vice President of Retail Experience at Verizon, Wasserman's scope spanned the entire customer purchase journey, including more than 6,000 stores, plus digital retail touchpoints for technology products and services, including the once-in-a-lifetime launch of 5G. Wasserman previously led businesses at Nordstrom, Soul Society, Hudson's Bay, Lord & Taylor, and Nine West. Wasserman earned her Bachelor of Science from Cornell University and MBA from Columbia Business School. She and her family reside in downtown Manhattan, where she's active with UJA Federation of New York's Fashion and Technology Divisions and mentors startups through the New York Fashion Tech Lab and XRC Labs, among others. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Anytime. So I'm just so inspired and impressed by your leadership at some of my favorite retail stores. <laughs> you know, before we get into all that, can you take us back to your childhood and share what that was like with us? And so where did you grow up and what were some of your earlier influences? Grew up uh, in the suburbs of New York City was a Long Island kid, went into the city a lot, always saw a future for myself in those busy, high energy environments, loved school as a kid, spent a lot of time outside, also spent a lot of time inside in dance studios, loved dancing, did it through high school. That was really formative for me in overcoming any kind of stage fright and just getting really confident about jumping into different types of routines and uh, moving up from one class to another, memorizing dances, getting accustomed to different types of music and costumes and traveling around. And so that, I think, has has shaped a lot of my my interests and um, some of the skills to to this day. So you did like dance recitals when you were younger? I did. Did dance recitals, traveled around for dance competitions and shows at different types of places throughout the year uh, and just loved it. Sometimes I think about doing it again, but maybe I should maybe I should leave it back there. Well, you know, you can always get into ballroom dancing or, or fill your I love could. for dancing in other ways, you know, salsa. Perhaps. Maybe just, maybe just go to go back to the ballet post COVID. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you were 16 when you began working in retail at a mall and you essentially yes. haven't left. So can you talk about those earlier beginnings at the mall? Like what sparked you about, about that? 
Well, I, I always had a desire to work um, and wanted jobs and didn't understand why at the age of 14 or 15, I couldn't be hired into, into a job just because I didn't have the experience yet or wasn't a certain age. And so I always had my eye on something like working in one of those stores that I loved shopping in. And as soon as I was old enough, I went to the local mall and started applying. And the store that I began working at at that time, I was 16, was limited to, which also may be dating both of us, um, but a really popular <laughs> children's and, and tween teen brand at the time. And immediately just dove onto the selling floor. I can still picture a lot of what the back of house looked like and how we had charts that tracked people's sales of certain items and the rewards that we got for selling really well. I remember the other people I worked with in the store and the conversations that we had, you know, keeping everything neat and on hangers and just thought it was, um, was so much fun and a great first work environment. So are you like the, where do you fall in line? Are you like the oldest? Are you an only child? <laughs> I am the older of two. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I asked that because I'm the oldest of, of five growing up and I was, I was just eager to get out and work and do <laughs> as well at a young age. So I was just curious. Yes. Well, looking back, I actually do wonder, was I eager to work or was I eager to spend more time in the mall and also have more money? <laughs> To spend well, you know, that's, that's valid. So that's very, a valid all question. Related. All very related. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it, that there's something to be said for, you know, wanting to get, I guess, your hustle on early and the, the, the natural place to do that is at the mall. I mean, most of us uh, can identify with having our first job there. So can you yes. tell us more about your educational background? Like, did you plan, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be two unrelated things, um, a, a fashion designer or a lawyer. I became neither, <laughs> but that th th those were two paths that I did think about as a child. I'm not sure which one I came closer on. Um, I did end up working for fashion companies, but also was pre-law for much of college. So, so came fairly close to, to both of those. Um, but in college, I went to, went to Cornell, as I think you mentioned, uh, upstate in upstate New York and was very interested in the types of majors that connect a lot of different subjects. And it's interesting because when I look back on that, I wonder if that interest was really foreshadowing my career, which also has skewed toward general management and the combination of so many different disciplines. Uh, but at the time, I studied something called policy analysis and management, which was a combination primarily of economics and sociology. And so really, it was about business, but also about people. And that continues to be a real common thread for me. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about developing people. So when, you know, when did you start to notice that you had these kinds of leadership skills? You know, at what point did you transition from working at the mall to being offered a leadership role in a company? Well, I think there was really an in-between where I wasn't necessarily uh, technically in the mall. I may have been working for the corporate offices of, 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 of companies that had stores and malls, um, but there definitely was a period where I was more of an individual contributor and wasn't, again, in, in the store, um, but wasn't yet leading people. And I think actually, and, and even before, um, before business school, so between Cornell and when I went back to Columbia, as you said, um, I had a couple of jobs where I saw leaders and I saw managers um, who I didn't want to emulate. And I think mm. just like you can learn so much about what you don't want to do from the internships that you try and, and don't love, for example, you can also learn about who you want to be as a manager and as a leader. Um, by some of the of the techniques that you see that don't resonate. And so that that certainly, you know, got me thinking. And then as I did get a bit more senior, whether it was still as an individual contributor or as a manager of small teams, I started to look at who are the leaders who I emulate and want to be like, and what can I take from their toolbox and make my own. And that's when things really uh, started to unfold for me, I think. And a lot of those 
fantastic examples of leadership uh, were during my time at Nordstrom. Yeah, I mean, you did you did hold you know many leadership roles with prominent brands yes, like Nordstrom, as you mentioned, and and Lord and Taylor. And as you're talking about like taking you know building your toolbox of leadership skills and 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 seeing like who you wanted wanted to emulate and who you didn't. Um, you know, how, how did you then develop your leadership style? Like, what are you known for <laughs> as you were, especially earlier in your career? Well, I have a, um, a, a print behind my work from home desk that says work hard and be nice to people. And it was given <laughs> to me by a prior one of my teams. And I do think that is, that is just a fundamental belief for me. It sounds so simple but it's actually a rarer combination than we might hope. And so that, that's a big part of it. And to, and to many teams, what I am known for. The other feedback that I pretty consistently get explicitly or implicitly is that I have a high bar, but I really help people get there. So the expectations um, you know, certainly are, are aggressive, but nobody is left to just figure out how to meet them on their own. I'm really all about being in the trenches with people, partnering more so than just managing or delegating, um, and giving that real-time feedback that helps people get better and feel great about what they're doing. I love that. We do need more leaders like that who do view view this as a partnership. I love that you said that. You know, it's a it is a partership. It's a collaboration. You're leading as well as building leaders. I like to I mean, think truly too. nobody is winning unless we're all winning. Yeah, we're all on the same team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're currently the head of global commerce at Verizon Media, which is a unique and historic role for the company as, as you're the first in that role. But before that, you were vice president of retail experience at Verizon. So can you talk about your career trajectory with Verizon and the impact you have made there? Yes, I joined Verizon almost four years ago now, which is so hard to believe. And just to step back a little bit, when I initially got that phone call from an executive recruiter on behalf of Verizon, I think my first thought was, wait, but but I work in retail. And in retrospect, that was a pretty narrow view because, yes, I had previously worked for fashion-oriented companies, and this was not that. Um, but Verizon, at that point, was the sixth largest retailer in the U.S. in terms of store count, as per the National Retail Federation. And so when you think about it, it was one of the biggest retailers and an opportunity for me to operate at massive scale for a brand that I had watched evolve over time and really, really respected. And so that's what drew me in. As you said, the role was leading retail experience, and people say, what is that? Um, But what it is, is a maniacal focus on what customers are doing within our store environments, and also in the before and after the store visit. Because I don't know about you, but what I see with myself and what we see in data across the industry is that it's rare now that consumers are just jutting into a store and out and not having any engagement with the brand before or after, whether it's researching before going to a store or actually um, ordering online with the intent of picking up in store or following through on something from a service or other standpoint after the store visit. uh, It really is a longer journey. And so that's what my team and I thought about. Uh, We also led the digital product management within all of these physical retail stores, meaning that we, in one case, we rolled out actually a new store concept called Verizon Express, which is meant to be a digitally led experience with some assists by our talented in-store teams. So a great analogy is if you think about an airport check-in kiosk. Um, it's something that that you and that most most flyers can do by themselves, get the boarding pass. Mm-hmm. But there are representatives from the from the airline who are friendly and and floating around if anybody needs anything. And so that was the nature of this store concept, and certainly was an impact that my team was able to create for the company. And one of the most um, fun projects that I worked on during my time in that role. The role definitely evolved over the few years that I was in it. Um, At first, in addition to this core customer experience management um, 
team that I had been describing and that I led, I also led a lot of the more creative functions around copy and photography and merchandising in the store. And through a reorganization, ended up not leading that creative piece of things anymore. Um, But in addition to the customer experience piece of it, picked up omni-channel analytics and a really, really cool team called Voice of Employee, which was all about connecting our headquarters teams with the people who work in our stores. Um, So all of that just goes to say that, you know, the role was not the same three years later as it was when when I started it. Uh, And and every shade of it was really equally exciting for me. That does sound exciting because I love being in that. Like, it sounds like you got to have that that retail space, but also that creative space to, you know, lead your team into building new experiences for people like me. (laughs) <laughs> when we're, when we're going to shop and you know it's so funny cuz i never think about verizon as like a retail store even though like yeah you're going there you're picking up phones and you know you're getting products for your phones and things of that nature so i it's really yeah. fascinating to 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 have another look at what what exactly this company does yes and it's also a major a major opportunity for education as we lead the nation in the rollout of 5G networks. And so thinking about how to explain to our customers what that really means and how it benefits them um, was a great challenge and opportunity that we got to think about. Well, especially because there's so much conspiracy theories and misinformation around 5G technology. And a lot of people, I mean, I'll I'll be candid. I I have uh, people in my family who were just like, we're not getting any phones with 5G in it. And, and it was just like, are you serious right now? <laughs> you know, like, so having that. I, I can recommend <laughs> you get it, right? great podcasts. That's what yes, you hear. Yes, who can, who can dispel those notions. Yes. Yeah, I think it's fascinating and interesting, you know, how people are afraid of technology and emerging technology when really it's it, it is the next wave of 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 support and accessibility for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, we say that we're building the networks that move the world forward, and I believe that we are. Oh, absolutely. You know, so in your in your role now as head of global commerce at Verizon Media. You know, it is the the first role of its kind. So I'd love to to pop into your pocket and and you know take a, a journey through what you know your day to day looks like and and what you're building there. Yes. So so as you mentioned, uh, this is not a role that we've had at the at the company before. And Verizon Media, by the way, in case you or, or some listeners aren't familiar, is home to a number of trusted brands, including Yahoo, Yahoo Sports, Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Mail, TechCrunch, and Gadget, In the Know. I could go on and on. Um, with 900 million monthly active users. So you mentioned, you know, big multimedia brand, and and certainly I think that puts it into context. So since joining, it's really been just an invigorating period as I've led this really diverse team across all the functional areas you, you mentioned. And what we're really thinking about every single day is how do we accelerate the company's commerce business, drive more revenue from it, and build new shopping experiences for consumers while also thinking about our customers on the ad side of the business and how we serve them better and better. So today, at a point in time, our commerce businesses include content commerce, we call it, across all of those brands I mentioned from Yahoo to Engadget to our shoppable Gen Z and millennial network called In the Know. Content commerce, if you're not sure, is um, sometimes some companies also will call it an affiliate, an affiliate business. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may be reading an article, see an item, a product mentioned, and click or tap on that link and be taken to another company where you check out. That, generally speaking, is what a content commerce business is. Um, I'm speaking in, in broad terms here intentionally. We can get more into some of the details. Uh, well, I learned something. The- <laughs> <laughs> That's new to good, me, good. so thank you. <laughs> the second part of the business today is Yahoo Mail. 
And that's where we feature these really commerce-centric tools that users just just love. Um, We see that some of the power shoppers who use Yahoo Mail use that mailbox differently from how you might use um, a mailbox where it's primarily about correspondence. And so increasingly, we're testing and rolling out features and functionality that respond to this activity and to this behavior. And then third, and this is coming soon, is our own native marketplace, where we actually become the merchant of record in processing transactions and serving the consumer journey from beginning to end. So again, that business today includes content commerce, Yahoo Mail, and and marketplace. Um, There are also components of it that happen in our Yahoo search business to to some extent also. Uh, I mentioned in the know and do want to uh, to just spend a minute on that because it honestly wasn't a brand that I was always familiar with, but it is a top 25 U.S. lifestyle property. Um, You know, I won't I won't name other sites, but bigger than a lot of a lot of brands and and publishers that you definitely do know. And so it's it's definitely it's worth paying attention to. Um, It does a really, really good job of being this hybrid magazine catalog that tells stories and also sells to readers when they're really in that mindset and looking for it. So. I can get into that a little bit more later, but very, very excited about what that lean team has been delivering on, highly shoppable. And so overall, this this overall commerce business that I'm describing has increased uh, GMV, uh, gross merchandise value, by 213% since last year. And so that growth is coming from really all of this, illustrating that Verizon Media has become this real player in commerce. So couldn't be more excited uh, to be at the center of it. Wow. And leading and leading and paving the way. I mean, you know, what do you feel is the future of shopping and e-commerce? And how do you intend to build Verizon Media as a game changer and leader within the industry? I think it's being everywhere that our that our user is and making the path to purchase as frictionless and delightful as we possibly can. So it's not, it's not just about one thing or another, but it's about content commerce and being present in all of those articles across all of those uh, publisher brands that I mentioned. It's about the live shoppable video that we have launched as part of In the Know. It's about every time you go into your Yahoo Mail inbox, having a shopping experience at the ready for you. And then it will be about this, this marketplace also. So I think it's less about saying we need to be just really good in one thing or another and more thinking about how do we have these different experiences, how do we make them all compelling in their own right, and then how do we connect them so that it's logical, and again, I'll use the word delightful, for consumers. So for example, if they are shopping from an article, they shouldn't have to check out separately from when they are shopping in our marketplace when we're all one company. And so it's really thinking, it's really thinking about that and making things as natural as we possibly can. Yeah, like I'm trying to, in my head, you know, think about when I'm in my Yahoo mailbox, like how am I shopping from that? (laughs) Well, I imagine you're getting some email from brands and perhaps you're, you're even going back to your inbox with those brands in mind. And wouldn't it be great to see a way to look at your inbox through that lens, if that's the mindset that you're in and you choose to do so. Oh, that's really almost make it feel like your own little mall. Yeah. (laughs) Because you know, you know, now I can't stay away from malls. So (laughs) you're like, well, how do I bring the mall experience to customers (laughs) without them leaving their their mailbox. Yes. That's, yes. that's Which actually so interesting. Remind, mm-hmm. And that reminds me to mention the marketplace that, that I teased a few minutes ago, but that will be launching this year. And it's anchored in a personalized experience. So it will connect consumers directly to brands and streamline the whole online shopping journey. And we think we're the first digital media marketplace to actually feature these native transaction capabilities meaning that it's not an ad or a, or a product shot 
where you just go somewhere else to check out, but we can take care of it from beginning to end. And by also embedding those commerce capabilities into our articles and other properties, um, it means that that marketplace actually becomes distributed. So if you are Gen Z or a millennial and you and you want to shop or or you could be a different audience as well, potentially you go straight to you know this this destination that we're telling you is a marketplace. Um, but once we have that you know technology, it means that we can also shorten the path to purchase across our whole ecosystem. And that's where we can build in functionality like that universal shopping cart I mentioned. And the, we're launching with a um, commitment to diversity as well. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about this marketplace launch for me is that from inception, we're pledging that at least 15% of merchants will be Black-owned businesses. And so mm. with the scale of Verizon Media's audience and advertising platforms, this marketplace really will be able to make an impact in that way because we're looking at, at other opportunities to um, to you know fulfill our, our diversity ambitions as well. But it will also really be uh, this seamless connection between brands and consumers all the way from discovery to transaction. You know, I'm really looking at at Verizon in a whole new lens <laughs> because it's like just so multidimensional. And, and it really and, is. And I had no idea that Yahoo was one of the, you know, brands, sub brands underneath it. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, not that you asked, but when I think back to joining the company four years ago, I didn't know about all of this either. And so it's just a great lesson in being really open from a career standpoint to opportunities that come your way. And trying to take as broad a view as possible and really be curious and listen and not be too set on the on a, on a narrow path. So I'm curious, like what made you say yes? Uh, the, I had watched the brand evolve. Um, we have a really dynamic, inspiring CMO, Diego Scotti, who over in the couple of years before I got there had already really begun this brand transformation that now is way further farther along. Um, and so I had watched this unfold and see how the Verizon stores near me had, had begun to evolve. And then when I thought about the fact that it is just so many stores and the opportunity to impact so many customers around the country, that was an exciting proposition for me and just great cross-functional responsibility and the ability to learn about selling a different type of product category and service and subscription as opposed to primarily having worked in more of the soft lines categories. See, and you just never know because that yes could land you in a historic seat being the first CEO or executive in a role at a major company. So you just never know when you do say yes. It's <laughs> actually funny that you just said that because the biggest career advice that I, that I can give anybody is to always say yes. Um, within reason, right? They're, they're, everybody has boundaries. Um, but really, I think it's saying yes whenever you possibly can. And I mean saying yes to the promotion, even if you think you not you might not be ready. I mean saying yes when somebody offers you additional responsibility and you're not sure if you have the bandwidth. Saying yes when somebody asks you to take on a side project within the company. Saying yes when people are grabbing dinner after work or going to a baseball game, even though you don't like baseball. Um, whenever possible, just saying yes, um, because what those opportunities and those experiences and those new relation relationships and sometimes those informal conversations can bring um, is just, it's just really, it's impossible to estimate in the moment, but I've never regretted saying yes. Oh, I love that. Well, we're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Dr. Jadida Eisler. Dr. Eisler is an assistant professor of astrophysics at Dartmouth College, where she studies hyperactive, supermassive black holes. 
Her scientific research explores the physics of blazars, which are supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies that create particle jets moving at nearly the speed of light. In 2014, she became the first African-American woman to receive her PhD in astrophysics from Yale University. Dr. Eisler is an activist for diversity in STEM and is the creator and host of Vanguard, Conversations with Women of Color in STEM, an online platform and community that centers the experiences of women of color, girls of color, and non-binary people of color in STEM. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Dr. Jadida Eisler. Hello, innovators. We are back with Andrea Wasserman talking about building an incredible career in the retail industry, changing the face of online shopping, and saying yes. So, Andrea, you are also a serial entrepreneur. So, first of all, what is an entrepreneur? And you're also a believer in radical candor, curiosity, and creative serendipity. I love that word, serendipity. So tell us more about that. When I think about entrepreneurship, and it's not a word I use all the time by any means, because I think it can be you know, misinterpreted or, or even overstate some of the things that I've done. But where I've developed a niche is in starting uh, new or leading nascent businesses in big established companies. And so that mindset I find is materially different from coming into an existing business and either turning it around or, or just, or growing it or incrementally improving it. Um, this is really something where you have to think differently from the way the, the rest of the company is operating and realize that in a lot of cases, you're starting with a smaller team and a smaller budget than you think you really need. And you need to go run around the company, engaging stakeholders and um, making pitches for additional investment that may not have the fastest return on investment. Because sometimes these incubated businesses within larger organizations need that extra amount of love and patience in order to get off the ground. It requires endless storytelling so that everybody who may not be working on the business but is excited about it knows what's happening with it and doesn't feel left out or just envious of it. Um, and so it is very different, I have found again, than coming into a role that maybe somebody has held before or coming into a business that is already big and doing really well. And all of those things have their advantages also. But time and again, I have found myself in roles that have not necessarily been held by anybody before and where there's a real desire on the part of a company to find these new revenue streams by getting creative. Creative serendipity. I love, love, love that. I need to find a way to use that in my own life. Well, I think the serendipity piece comes in when you don't define creative as just about a whiteboard or just about people who consider themselves creative. I mean, yeah. some of the most creative problem solving I've done recently has been with one of my closest partners in this business who leads our commerce engineering and product efforts. And that problem solving actually came off of a spreadsheet. And so that's where I think not being um, too too narrow, again, I'll use that word, about some of these definitions can be can be really important. I, I I just love that. And you know, I also love the fact that you subscribe to the idea that not all ideas or companies have to be scalable. And in a world where scalability has always been king, why do you feel it's okay to do the unscalable? I think there can be a number of different reasons. Um, one is that we just need learnings. And it's possible that then those learnings will be applied to a different area of the business. And so the learnings may be scalable, even if the business itself was not. Another reason could be that there is a, a desire to be in a business that will be a feeder for consumers to then kind of be brought along to another piece of the business. And so maybe it's just a jumping off point 
Um, and that business itself is never meant to do something that big, but we know that it can do something else for the company. And if it's not as a customer feeder, maybe it's at a brand halo effect. So I think that what all of this goes to show is that what's important is to be super clear about objectives upfront. I was telling my team recently that one learning I've had over the years in in leading or, or starting these new businesses within companies is that it's more important than in other businesses to be crystal clear about the expectations because on day one of that launch, all eyes are on it and everybody is excited mm-hmm. about it, but people don't necessarily remember that it was only going to be A on day one and not A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> and so <laughs> <That's true. laughs> over, over communicating about here's what you're going to see and here's what you're going to see not for another month or another quarter. And here is the traffic and here are the sales that we're expecting at this time so that you don't have people looking at it and confused about what the indicator of success would be. Oh, that's, that's a big one there because I think, I think, I think we do have a tendency to overshare or overpromise, um, you know, just based on what we know we're growing or building as entrepreneurs and and founders, I see that a lot of people. Uh, I mean, I, I we've even done it at, at Wonder Woman's Hut where we're like, this is what we're doing or this is what we're going to do. And everybody's expecting all of the bells and whistles at once. Yes. <laughs> yes. And mm-hmm. So I do like that. I do like what you just said about, um, you know, making sure that you're communicating where you're at today. Yes, yes. And I think that you know, entre- like true entrepreneurs, and I don't consider myself one, need to do the same thing probably with consumers and with investors. Um, the distinction here is doing it with, with everybody in a large company because yeah. that's where you're operating. Well, I'm sure that you've had your share of challenges in life. So can you share a moment where you wanted to give up or needed to pivot? And how did you navigate through that? Well, I talked a little bit about, you know, my philosophy of saying yes, as often as possible. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that can be really scary. And Mm -hmm. I remember in a particular or particular role saying yes to this, this promotion and this expansion of, of responsibility And then going back to my office and saying, I don't know how to do this. Like, I I actually don't know, don't know where to put the pen right now. Um, (laughs) And it was, it was daunting and paralyzing in a way. And I immediately thought about, well, who are the people? One, one, I was asked to do this because enough people think I can. So let me, let me take solace in that. And then I very quickly thought about who could help me. And I think that we forget how helpful most people want to be. Mm, it sounds yeah. very it sounds very simplistic, but for somebody who's been successfully in a role for 25 years and not feeling threatened by anybody and is an expert in what he or she is doing, um, it's actually quite refreshing to have this young scared person show up and say, "Will you please help me?" And can, can we please meet once a week for a little while so that I can ask you my running list of questions? And so that was how I handled it. And it was, it was a great reminder for me that, like I said, people want to be helpful. And, and also just say yes, because eventually you, you do figure it out. Um, and we know that, especially in the case of women, we tend to doubt whether we're ready for the new job or ready for the promotion yeah. in a way that, um, that the data show men do not. And so I would just encourage everybody of, of any gender uh, to really to really have the confidence that there that there often is a way to get there, even when you have those moments of doubt. And it's also okay to recognize, like, holy, holy heck, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Like, what, what, yes. <laughs> what's next? And it's so true because yes. I think when we do say yes, I'm a I'm a yes person too. Um, Andrea. And so like, when I say yes, like there's a few times, actually there's many times that I'm like, okay, what did I just say yes to? Cause I have no idea what's the <laughs> next step, but then I feel like I'm supposed to know. So I don't ask for help and that's, and I, and now I do, but like, but for so long, I didn't ask for help because I was like, well, I said, yes, it's my burden. I need to carry it. 
So I love that you immediately, or I don't know how immediate, but I love that you eventually find yourself in that space of asking for mentorship and and, and getting the answers so that you mm-hmm. could do your job. So many of Definitely. us don't do that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So for those of us who really want to step deeper into our leadership, whether, you know, whether it is as an entrepreneur or whether it is in, in a larger company or a smaller company, um, but we just want to get, you know, connected with developing people or developing ourselves. Do you have some book recommendation, uh, recommendations that you've read that have been an influence in your own life? Uh, yes, three come to mind and they're fresh of my fresh coming to my mind, uh, very quickly because I recently recommended them to, to somebody else. Um, but for all of your listeners, I would say there are three. One of them is, uh, a book called the finer points and finer in this case is spelled F as in Frank E I N as in Nancy E R. And it was written by my favorite business school professor, Michael Finer. And it just goes through uh, many anecdotes from his life and his career uh, and gives great examples and illustrations for how to be a leader people really want to work for and with. Um, Mm. So that I I just, I find myself going back to it and reading excerpts from time to time. It's very, it's very consumable in the way that it's written chapter by chapter. So I love that one. Uh, you had mentioned in uh, a little while ago that I, I, I certainly am a follower of Kim Scott's radical candor philosophy. And so I would recommend that book by her. Again, it's called Radical Candor. And then the third one is um, by, uh, by an executive coach and disruptive thinker I really like uh, named Whitney Johnson. And that book is called Building an A-Team. And she really talks about how to think about individual members of the team and where they are in their careers and in their skills as it relates to the jobs that this team needs to do and how to compose a team that is very, very thoughtful in, in, in its combination of people. Mm, yeah. That sounds like a book I want to pick up today. <laughs> <laughs> I do recommend it. So, you know, we've we've just navigated this this crazy pandemic. Obviously, we've had to rethink the way that we connect with people and the way that we connect with our teams, the way the way that we connect with ourselves. Um, and certainly there must be pressure, you know, as a leader to, you know, work with your teams in these remote environments. Um, how has that impacted you at all? I think it's a great reminder that it's unfortunate we may have needed, but it's a great reminder that everybody has their lives outside of work and we may not always have been seeing them, but now we are. And so Mm -hmm. we have the opportunity to ask about the picture on the wall or the book on the shelf or the child we hear in the background. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a wonderful humanizing thing. Um, for people to get to see each other in that way. Um, it's, it's great fodder for conversation, especially this summer where some people are working from alternate locations to be able to open up and say, hey, different background, where are you this week? Um, and we get to know each other, I think, a little bit better that way. Now, of course, we don't have the spontaneous hallway conversations and elevator chats, and so that's missing. But I think this this view into people's lives and homes, although sometimes it can feel uncomfortable, can really bring a lot of meaningful connection if done thoughtfully. I have to agree with that because I feel like I know my team in, and we were already a pretty very open, I have an open communication policy. We're all humans uh, yes. culture here, but it was very... Um, I think what it did for us was allow even more vulnerability and authenticity and opportunity to connect on those very real levels than we've ever had before. Um, yes. And I think in that like journey, we kind of, it's like, well, we're all human. We're all going through this hard time together. Let's, yes. let's, you know, make it, make it work. Let's do our very best. I've The productivity level went through the roof as a result mm-hmm. of, of that as well, I feel. Yes, I would agree. 
So I, I also see that you're a, an avid Peloton writer. <laughs> I, I actually do more Peloton <laughs> off the bike than on it. Although I do, I do ride as well. <laughs> it was I like funny because our... I like the strength workouts. Yes. Yeah. Our executive producer was like, she talks a lot about Peloton on social media. And I'm like, that is so cool. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> Well, we like to do our research to find, you know, other fun things yes. about yes, our people. No. But, but actually, speaking of COVID and kind of the virtual year that we recently had, I think my last um, my last comment about about Peloton on social was on Twitter last week, and it, I remember it distinctly because I was in I was taking a class. It was actually a ride where uh, the instructor had a problem with the microphone. And it was actually so refreshing to see something that felt so real and unscripted and not produced. It was like a real problem. And there was, you know, there was a good minute or so where he just wasn't saying anything. And you saw him grab a new mic and switch out the pack in the back and all of that. And it was really, it just, it just reminded you, I think that not that this didn't all used to be um, so heavily produced. Yeah, I guess I never think about things like that. I feel like so much content is so produced, like it's designed and crafted. Even these TikToks and everything, it's just like so manufactured. Yes. Well, that's one of the reasons that I, I love the way that with our In the Know team, we launched that live shoppable video back in March. Um, it's fantastic content about parenting uh, for millennials and also home and cooking. And we literally have editors doing it from their apartments. Um, and it's polished and it's fantastic, but you can tell that it's somebody's apartment. And this is real life when you're seeing these products being recommended. Oh, or that's, evaluated. And that's what I like too. That's what I like. I talked to my team about that too. Like even when we do ads for these podcasts, that it's, it's real, that it's, it's not, it, it's like something that we believe in or that we like or stand behind. I love so that. I, I think it's so important. You know, as I mentioned before at Wonder Women Tech, we thrive on authenticity and uh, authenticity and vulnerability. Um, so can you share something with us that you've never shared with anyone else before? Um, with never with anybody else. How about never publicly? Yes. Cause I can't think of anything that really nobody knows, um, <laughs> <laughs> but never publicly um, that works. Yes. Okay. So one of my favorite movies, hard to say absolute favorite, but one of my favorite movies is legally blonde. And the reason that this is interesting is because I was embarrassed about it for a long time and did not <laughs> share it publicly. However, I've always really liked it. And in honor, I want to say it was the 20th anniversary. I'm afraid that it was the 25th, but I hope it was only the 20th. In honor of that, (laughs) the New York Times a few weeks ago um, wrote about it and actually talked about how in a lot of ways it what the script and they gave some behind the scenes on the script too, was a precursor to a lot of what we have seen since in, uh, since regarding women's empowerment and feminism in the workplace. And I just thought to myself, I shouldn't have been embarrassed. I knew there was a reason I liked that. I liked that movie. Oh yeah. Elle Woods is like, you know, an empowerment meme now. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. I was just, I was just ahead of our time on it. You were, but I get it. You know, well, not I think... really, because it was a it was a phenomenally pop- popular movie. To be fair, so I can't really say I was ahead of our time. But I guess I was. <laughs> I was. I, I shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have been sheepish about about uh, stating it. <laughs> I love that story, Andrea. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I think we all can identify with something that we're like, oh my god, I can't believe I liked that or loved that. Yes. Um, Yes. But then it turns out to be something that, that, you know, either a cult following or everybody right. ends up loving. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so empowering to be able to, to sit down with you and learn about, you know, how you, how you b- bring to life, you know, this global commerce brand that you're building and, and stepping into a role that is, as is historic for the company, Um, is there anything that you feel is an important next step for you? I think continuing to be curious 
and to be interested not only in new businesses, but in being broad in how I define the word commerce and continuing even more aggressively, I think, post-COVID in looking across sectors to try to connect dots about what hotels and restaurants are doing to serve consumers in new ways, how movie theaters might be responding, what's happening with urban development, because consumers are not only shopping when they're buying from from us or from traditional retailers. The bar is being set everywhere they are. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a lot of that, especially as I get back to, to traveling. Wow. I guess I just never think about even my role as a consumer that I'm constantly <laughs> having an opportunity to consume and and shop and make yes. a decision around how I shop and what I shop. Yes. I mean even ethically, you know, I think uh you know for me especially with everything that's been going on with the you know systemic racism and and Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening, you know, politically um, I am much more conscious with my dollars. Mm-hmm. And so do you take that into consideration in your builds? Certainly. Certainly. Well, I'm very excited to to see the rollout for do you know when this is gonna roll out, the marketplace? We haven't announced a specific date yet, uh, but it certainly will be in, in this quarter. I'm excited. Well, I look forward to that. Um, you know, as you've been building your your life and your career, if you had to do it all over again, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? Uh, certainly would not would not take the easy road. I don't think that I have taken the easiest road. I will say candidly that sometimes I wonder if I have even taken taken uh, a challenging enough road at every turn, but I can, the only thing I can do is, you know, is to continue to look around and and see where those detours are and, and look up and find the forest through the trees and and keep (laughs) doing all of that and, and hopefully inspire others too as well. Well, you're definitely inspiring me, Andrea, and I'm sure to the listeners who will be inspired by your story and and pick up the books and, and build their own Uh, careers as leaders in the world. So thank you so much, Andrea, for sitting down with me, taking time to share your story. And I look forward to watching you grow. Thank you very much, Lisa May. It was so nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. Make sure you give us a like and share the podcast with your network. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.